This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Shelley Adler. I'm the interim director uh, for the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. I'm also the director of education there. And I am so delighted to be able to have the Osher Center hosting this fantastic program for you tonight. I get to inter, um, introduce a what I think of as an intergenerational dynamic duo, the, the doctors Ekman. I'll start with uh, Dr. Paul Ekman first and let you know that he is a professor emeritus of psychology here at UCSF, where he uh, works in the field of nonverbal behavior, including both facial expressions and gestures. He's the co-discoverer of micro-expressions, and for any of you, and I can't imagine there are that many who aren't familiar with that term, micro-expressions are very brief facial expressions that only last a fraction of a second, and they occur when a person is concealing a feeling or an emotion, whether it's uh, deliberate or, uh, or unconscious. Because Dr. Ekman is a true mind-body researcher, he actually mapped all 43 muscle groups that are used in facial expressions. 43. His work has afforded him a unique opportunity to work with a whole range of different types of people and different organizations. For example, he's trained many law enforcement agencies to detect deception and in fact, there is a TV show that many of you probably know about uh, that ran from around 2009 to 2011 called Lie to Me. It was based on his work. He also, this is another one of my favorite fun facts about Dr. Ekman, was one of the content consultants for the Pixar movie Inside Out. And see, that gets the biggest. Now that's impressive. 43 expressions, muscle groups, whatever. Are you on? I wrote a parent's guide to that film that you can use if you're showing it to your children about the kinds of things you might want to uh, emphasize. Terrific, terrific. And as we're going to learn... Uh, in the presentation tonight, the Dalai Lama commissioned Dr. Ekman to design a project that explores the philosophical underpinnings of Eastern and Western approaches to emotions. Now, shifting to the next generation, it's my pleasure <laughs> to introduce Dr. Eve Ekman, who is a research fellow at the Osher Center. We have a NIH fellowship in integrative medicine research that uh, Eve is participating in, and I have the pleasure of being her mentor for that, although all credit goes to her for her wonderful work. And what she is doing is conducting research in the areas of meaning, empathy, and burnout. And her work was inspired by the fact that she was a medical social worker at San Francisco excuse me, Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. <laughs> it takes a little while to get the, the new name out. Uh, Dr. Ekman, Dr. Eve Ekman, is also a teacher trainer for something called Cultivating Emotional Balance, and that's an emotion regulation and meditation program that's based in both Western science and contemplative practice. The program was designed by the elder Ekman, I guess I will use that phrase, um, and also a Buddhist scholar, uh, many of you probably know, Alan Wallace, and, uh, and Dr. Eve Ekman has adapted it for 
uh, care providers in different settings, including medicine, education, and criminal justice. Now, I want to say a couple of things about our, our program tonight before the official uh, hand uh, off to our presenters. We'll have a presentation for about half the time, and then for the second half, you see that there are microphones set up. Please feel free when we uh, uh, transition in the center of the program to uh, line up and get questions ready. So that will be the time for more interactive discussion. So at this time, it gives me tremendous pleasure to introduce Dr. Ekman and Dr. Ekman. So we are very happy to be here this evening, especially being hosted by the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, which embodies a lot of the values that we brought into this atlas. And we're just looking forward to giving you a tour of how we got here and the ideas that relate to this emotion atlas, what we hope you can take away this evening. So we are going to give ourselves a little bit more of a thorough introduction what led us to the discoveries or ideas or relevant research that led to the Atlas of Emotion, both from my dad's experience and my own. We're going to talk about what is the foundation of science from which this Atlas is built on. The Dalai Lama, who you've heard funded this project, was explicit that he wanted it to be as closely based to what we have evidence for as possible. The unfortunate news is what we have evidence for is very limited. And we will be very clear about what we know and very clear about the great deal we still don't know. We're then going to talk about how this atlas could potentially help you developing emotional awareness and why that might be useful. And we're going to give you a live tour of the atlas on the internet. Um, and we will talk a little bit about future research ideas, some of my own studies adapting the atlas, and where we hope to go in the future. Dr. Ekman Sr., Nothing to add. Go right ahead. <laughs> okay. You're, you are up for the first slide here. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I spent my whole career at UCSF, uh, theoretically at Langley Porter, but actually I rented some houses that then the university got ownership of and, uh, on um, Fifth Avenue. I had three houses. I kept hoping for the hotel, but it never came. The, uh, but... Uh, seriously, the, I did research uh, on studying expression and gesture, I think in 18 countries, and uh, spent <clears throat> about half of every year out of the country uh, traveling. Lots of fun, uh, particularly when someone else is paying for it. <laughs> and traveling used to be uh, pretty hassle-free, and planes weren't crowded. In fact. Even in economy class, they used to have at the back of the plane an area where you could sit around a table with other passengers, play cards, have a conversation, share a meal. It was very civilized, <laughs> really nice to travel. It's a changed world. A lot of more people are traveling at less expense. The, uh, but my earliest work and the work I became best known for uh, was establishing that there are somewhere between five and seven emotions that have uh, a universal expression in the face. They also have a universal vocal signature, uh, but that has uh, not been as well defined, and my work was on the face, not on the voice 
I had a colleague who I expected would do the voice part of it. He only did part. But if you see an expression and you don't hear it at the same time, it means some type of management's occurring. Because these are dual systems. And the fact that it is a dual system, if any of you have children, means that you don't have to sit watching your infant all the time. They'll call you when they need your help. And parents soon learn to distinguish the, the distinctive sound of hunger, frustration, uh, disappointment, fear. They all have a different facial signature, a different vocal signature. Um, it's hard to believe, but when I started this work back in the late 50s, early 60s, there was no tool for measuring the face. Or there was no way to actually do science with facial expression. And uh, it took me eight years to develop the tool. Uh, that's now widely used. So there's even an automated version of it that Apple just bought, not from me. <laughs> and uh, they won't say what they're doing with it. I've tried to find out. Uh, but uh, my hunch is they bought it just so no one else would have it. Uh, and they're going to do nothing with it except sit on it. But I don't know. Uh, it's proprietary, as they say. The, so getting the evidence for universals and expression. Uh, incidentally, although I now distinguish 16 different types of enjoyment, that are as different from each other as anger is from fear. Let's just give you one example. Relief is enjoyable, okay? And so is tactile stimulation. Two totally different enjoyable uh, emotions that are triggered in this fashion. So once we had a tool, the facial action coding system, we could then really do science, and most of the science I did was looking for what I call leakage, for signs that betrayed a deception that was occurring. Why that? Well, you don't have to teach anybody how to recognize emotion if no one's trying to conceal it. It's obvious, you know, from the age of two to three, everybody knows how to do it. But very few people, I tested over 15,000 people in all walks of life, literally all professions, and none of them could tell the difference between a fake and a real expression. We have a tool on the internet that teaches you how to do that in an hour. And anyone can use it, and well, more than a half million people have. I just wanted to point out that these images here uh, are my dad in the 70s. And what you see is a couple of the muscle groups of the 43. And the way that he was looking at the face, which is just such an incredibly well-articulated tool. All of these muscle groups involved in every expression, me like this, me smiling, my anger, all these different muscle groups occurring. And in order for him to do this, he had to give, a, was it electrostimulation, a little bit of pain? Well, a needle into a muscle. <laughs> a I didn't have to do it most of the time because, uh, like you, <laughs> we both have... Uh, better than average voluntary control over the facial muscles. I'll just give you one example I used to do at my daughter's birthday parties to entertain her friends. <laughs> it was a hit. still yeah. is. <laughs> Not so, everybody can do that. And I, I think it's just uh, important to note here that we're talking about the signal of expression. 
and how this puts us along the path of understanding the experience of emotion expression as well. Uh, but I've got to interject that one of the unexpected findings, we actually, this finding made the front page of the New York Times without <laughs> killing anybody, uh, the, is that the face is not just a display system, it's a generation system. So if I, was, I could tell you right now what to do voluntarily with your face that would get, turn on the physiology of anger or disgust or sadness or fear, just like that. Now the funny part is turning on the physiology of enjoyment is much harder to do voluntarily. There are better ways to do it than by moving your facial muscles. I like that. Um, and next we're going to just talk a little bit about my dad's work since he left these hallowed halls here uh, of UCSF and really translated a lot of basic science to tools to help people. He mentioned already the micro-expression training tool. This is a way we can identify micro-expressions in the face, though I warn you here and now that once you learn these skills, you do not unlearn them. <laughs> And sometimes people enjoy when you point that out, and sometimes they do not. <laughs> uh, you may not always like what you see. Yeah. But it opens your eyes, and you can't. You could only uh, avoid it if you really kept your eyes closed and, or wore a mask. Uh, and what we, we see in people's faces may or may not actually relate to us. So someone is speaking, they show a micro-disgust, it could have to do with something that happened much earlier in the day or a remembered past. So we're giving you the caveats and also inviting you to check this out for yourself. So the images you see on the top here are stills from the micro-expression training tool. Um, and then there's also ways that this has been used in national security um, and applied for people who want to not just rely on racial profiling, but also use the content of what's happening in the face to detect threat is incredibly important. Just to move... Oh, Just please. to interject for a moment. <laughs> please. It's important to remember that emotions don't tell you their trigger. Hmm. So when you see someone afraid or angry, it may be because of you or what you just said, but it may not be. The trigger isn't... You have to find out what the trigger is and don't jump to the conclusion that you know without checking it. This, another image that we have here is from one of the many meetings that my dad had with His Holiness the Dalai Lama prior to the Atlas of Emotion to discuss emotion, to discuss its implications. And we'll look at a brief video clip that will help give you the framework for why try to create an Atlas of Emotion, which is a very difficult thing to do, and maybe if we knew how hard we would not have started, um, but maybe would have tried anyway because it was a good deal of fun. And the way my dad met the Dalai Lama was at a Mind and Life meeting in Dharamsala in the year 2000. This brought together scientists who were all on the topic of destructive emotions. Many of you have probably read the book by Daniel Goleman, Destructive Emotions, and there was an ongoing dialogue among different scientists and scholars around how we can navigate these emotions which tear us apart from one another. Now, of course, I maintain that emotions are not inherently destructive. Depends how you enact it. You can enact it in a constructive or a destructive fashion. If emotions were destructive, they wouldn't have been preserved over the course of our evolution. The 
key thing to understand about emotions is that they solve problems without thought at the moment. They're based on what's been useful in the past, in our evolutionary past and in your personal past. Well, it depends how screwed up your personal past was, whether your emotional reactions are going to be appropriate or completely inappropriate. But they happen quickly and take over the whole system and without usually your being aware of it. It isn't until afterwards that you realize you were emotional. You have this expression, I love this expression, I lost my head. As if you could, that explains it. Where did your head go that you lost <laughs> it? Okay. No, you were unaware of what you were doing and that's the nature of emotion is that you don't do it with awareness unless you engage in practices that I hope you're going to be discussing. Yes, yes. Um, which brings us to cultivating emotional balance. <clears throat> and I'll describe that a bit more later, but we're, I'm very happy to have some cultivating emotional balance students in the audience. Yay! And we just finished up a course at Osher Center where we had a public course. Mostly cultivating emotional balance has been taught by me in the hospitals with residents and training, um, but it was wonderful to have a course just open to the public just recently ended. And in addition to cultivating emotional balance, which came to life at the Mind and Life meeting at the very end of these two weeks, there's the Dalai Lama, my dad, a number of other scientists who you would probably all know, Richard Davidson, uh, Mark Greenberg, and then some Buddhist scholars and theoreticians as well, including Alan Wallace. And they decided that they should take these important ideas around emotion and create a training that was secular and approachable, but could truly provide some skills and tools that people could use in the everyday life. Well, we didn't decide that, actually. It was the Dalai Lama who said, is this just going to be good talk? Or is something going to happen as a result of this meeting? And when he was, said this, he was looking right in my eyes. So I so I thought, okay, we'll make something happen. We'll translate, we'll try to put together uh, a meditative framework with a scientific emotion framework, and that's what cultivating emotional balance is. Yeah. We did succeed. It took a couple of years to develop. And the research study was also at UCSF. Margaret Kemeny was the PI. So we're, we have a lot of UCSF legacy in the cultivating emotional balance. Global Compassion, I wanted to mention here, all of these resources are available on my dad's website, including something like 20 brief webinars with the Dalai Lama. We'll see a snippet of one, um, as well as a lot of training tools that are free and some at cost as well, but there's just a, a wealth of information. So to give you a little more background on myself and my own work, um, as Shelley said, I was at the ZSFGH, the San Francisco General Emergency Room in for about six years as a medical social worker, which was an awesome time to exercise my compassion and try to learn how to avoid burnout. And the experience there led me back to school of wanting to know how to support compassion, how to sustain that empathy, even when every single day there's such high calls for your distress. There's so many people who are suffering, so much difficulty, so little time to process. And I was very fortunate that the first cultivating emotional balance teacher training was happening as I was in my uh, PhD program at Berkeley. And I went hoping to be an observer and see my dad and Alan teach the first round of CEB teachers how to do this training that they had found so beneficial. I arrived and unfortunately my dad's health 
I didn't allow him to come. So they got junior Dr. Ekman, or not even doctor at that point. And uh, luckily, I'd just come to the ER so I could manage everybody's distress and disappointment. And uh, after teaching that first year, I just fell in love with the materials and the course and the way to really draw people out of their everyday experience and slow down to understand that often when we remember an incident of our emotions, it's, we remember it as, I was angry all day. And I was mad. And I was sad. And I was probably afraid. When in fact, there are these discrete episodes of emotion throughout our day that lead to one another. And when we slow down and we investigate their trigger, their felt experience, and our responses, that starts to help us slow down, be present, develop that emotional awareness where we have choice over these responses, whether or not those responses are destructive or constructive. It's by no means easy, but it's actually quite simple. So that's, that's a little bit about CEB. And I've adapted this to work in the medical setting. I've been really fortunate to work with family community medicine, pediatrics, and internal medicine so far in developing a training for the residents that I deliver over the course of the year and give them a mini CEB, often just a little dose throughout their very difficult schedule. Many of these residents are struggling with not only learning to be doctors for the first time, but intense hierarchies, very minimal free time. So they're often pretty much stressed to the maximum amount of stress without time to recover and be able to use self-care tools. So I think that working with this population is probably the hardest I could imagine. Uh, the officers in the juvenile jail were much easier. They had more free time. That was my dissertation study. And, um, but they also are in such great need to have our healers, as I'm sure many of you in the room here are healers in one form or another, to have them be able to feel whole, understand their emotions, really have that empathy. It's critically important. So it's been wonderful to be at the Osher Center and supported to do this work and make this hopefully part of a core curriculum for people in training to help others. I will tell you a little bit more about EmoTrack after we look at the Atlas. So I'm going to show you a short video here that I think will give you an understanding of the foundation of why the Dalai Lama was interested in an atlas of emotion. The Dalai Lama said that in the 21st century, we must find out how to achieve a calm mind, and our approach must be secular. My thinking is that our target calm mind because the calm mind uh, directly so related with peace of mind and calm mind uh, I think the 24 hours including dream calm mind you see uh, I mean can maintain compassion 24 hours I don't think <laughs> uh, uh, so occasionally Occasionally, it's in a practical level, when some disturbing mosquito come, <laughs> there sometimes you need little <laughs> strong action. <laughs> but still, you see that kind of action you see can take while your mind very calm. Yes, I think there's a distinction you're making between a continuous state, huh? a calm mind. Yes and a capacity that can be called forth when an event requires it, 
like compassion. Mm -hmm. Compassion isn't there continuously, but when you see suffering Mm -hmm. or anticipate suffering, Mm -hmm. then the compassion emerges. Mm -hmm. And if I understood you correctly yesterday, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I did, but if Mm -hmm. I did, Mm -hmm. then if you have a calm mind, Mm -hmm. it is more likely that the compassion will emerge when called for. Yes? Oh, that also yes. Calm mind, uh, you can see things more realistically, more objectively. More vividly. Oh, vividly, several oh. But now you see, my sort of uh, approach is, now question, how to develop calm mind? The, the real sort of uh, obstacle or destroyer of calm mind is fear, suspicion, hatred, anger, greed, uh, too much ambition. These things are the... Uh, the destroyer of calm mind. Want to watch more? It's available online. Uh, I just wanted to give you just a little bit of a flavor of the level of conversations that were happening and going on and the import of which the discussion is happening. How do we have this calm mind? How do we help people avoid fear, anger? too much ambition. I don't, I don't know if that's a term at UCSF. I think it might be a new emotional territory. I think you can see from that little excerpt, and there are, I think, about 20 of them that you are available uh, on my website and just look at them one or more. Uh, why calmness is important to the Dalai Lama and why really it needs, we can't use our intelligence our enormous capacity for symbolic representation of experiences that we had in the past that we want to reconsider or ones we might have in the future that we want to plan. We can't do that if we're not in a calm state of mind. And there are many things that interfere with it, but one of them is being unaware of emotions that you're feeling. And that's what got him interested in emotion. And that's where we got our connection. So one of the quotes that the Dalai Lama was said to have been making for years and years before my dad approached him uh, to get the funding for this project was that we, we have to find a calm mind in the same way that when we found a new world, we needed a map. We needed to understand and see this. If I asked you prior to the Atlas of Emotion, what does an emotion look like? You would pantomime a face. You would show us what a signal of an emotion looks like. When I asked you maybe what it felt like or what triggered it or what it led to, it would be much more struggle. We don't have emojis for that, right? There's a different level of understanding to truly look into the emotion as a process, as an unfolding over time. So we're next going to describe the first step that my dad took when His Holiness agreed to fund this project. And the first step was to find out what scientists actually agree on, which if there's any scientists in the room, you can understand why this is a real foolhardy (laughs) undertaking, but an important one. There is a great deal of debate and different ideas in the field of emotion, like almost any field in psychology. And it was important to have some sort of 
basis for what people right here and now understand and agree upon and represent that with as much fidelity as possible. It turns out there, about, there were 248 people two years ago who defined themselves as emotion scientists. That's a lot of people. And uh, most of them in the English-speaking world, but not completely. Uh, a number in Japan, some in China, uh, in other countries as well, uh, European countries. And uh, the, I did a mail survey, uh, which I had to keep shorter than I would have liked because I wanted, I know that the longer the survey, the less likely it is people will do it. So, uh, but I was able to get a, a pretty good 60% response rate from the 248 emotion scientists and find out what they agreed to. What they agreed had been firmly established. What they agreed there was compelling evidence for. That was the way the question was phrased. And uh, to my disappointment, it's only five emotions. I say my disappointment because I think there are many more than five, but the evidence isn't compelling yet for more than five in the judgment of scientists who study emotion. And so that's what the Atlas focused on. Uh, following the, the Dalai Lama actually believes in the value of science more than I do. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can't answer everything with science, but he partly, I think, is, he thinks if it's, it's got to be secular. Again and again, he emphasizes, don't tie this to Buddhism, make this secular. His most recent book, which I really recommend, it's in paperback, uh, Beyond Religion. It's a secular ethics. A wonderful attempt to provide an ethical framework with no basis in any religion. He points out the religions have been the basis for most of the wars that we've had in the world and still have. So we've got to have an ethical framework without it. So we have here the agreed upon emotions. You can also check out our uh, atlas, which has a lot of information on what we were and were not able to include just based on the evidence which we currently have. There also was questions about whether or not there are universal triggers to emotion, reliably what makes people sad, what makes them feel afraid and angry. So there was moderate agreement here, over 50%, that there's a physiology, a felt experience that is different when we are having an emotional episode. That there are biologically discrete separate emotions, meaning anger is not fear, fear is not sadness, joy is not anger, right? That these are actually distinct experiences that we're having. Interestingly, we have less agreement on the social factors and biological. This is mostly for the emotion researchers in the room. If you really want to get into the details, we will get technical and specific with you. The idea here is, do we believe that emotions are coming out of our contextual environments? Are they innate? Uh, there's a lot of debate around these specific issues. So moving on, we, uh, our second step after having information was having the very good uh, ability to find Stamen, which is a design firm, and we're going we're to be very lucky to have Eric join us here for questions. And we have um, also other lead designers in the room from Stamen. They took on this question of, can we make a visual map of emotion with very little hesitation, which is a good sign. And they also, like us, probably did not realize how difficult this undertaking would be. 
How do we visually represent but not misportray what we know? How do we show that indeed fear has these different states, but we don't know if they're related to anger in any way or not? So every time you make a visual choice, you are leading people down a path and you want them to learn from it and you do not want to show them something that is misrepresentative, even if it's more attractive to look at. So we had a lot of these design questions alongside wanting to really truly help people understand what is known, but not deceive them. Every week for about two years, Eve and I and Eric Rodenbach's head of statement who's sitting in the corner there, uh, be joining us up here soon. Uh, we met every week for almost two years trying to figure out how can we use graphics to give us insight into our emotions. How can we map them? The Dalai Lama said when we wanted to get to the new world, we needed a map. If we want to get to a calm state of mind, make a map. Well, that's easier said than done, as the song <laughs> goes. Uh, how do you do it? And yet, the process of creating the map, of answering the questions that he kept raising about how to do it, how it should be shown, made me think about emotions in a way I hadn't thought of up until then. After 50 years of studying emotion, new questions emerged in order to represent it visually. Questions about seeing more than one emotion at the same time. If you look at any one of my books, you'll find a separate chapter on fear, another <laughs> one on anger, another one on disgust. But that's not how emotions actually work. So we want to be able to see a whole variety of them, which we'll get to show you some of what right we came up now. with. Right now, in fact. That's, that's what graphics lets you do. So we want to give you just a little tour of this atlas so you know where to go back to. <laughs> we start here with these continents of these different emotions. And what they each represent is a family of emotion. So what emotion do you guys want to see? I, enjoyment was the first one I heard. We'll go with enjoyment. So with enjoyment, we have a basic definition. And then we then go into these states of enjoyment. Just as my dad described the difference between feeling something like pride or relief. And with each of these different experiences, we also are looking at what is the range? You can be a little relieved, like, oh God, I made the bus, great. Or super relieved, like your test results came back and you don't have cancer, right? Enormous relief. So there's a huge range of certain emotions, whereas ecstasy, you're not going to have like a little bit of ecstasy, right? <laughs> this, is a, this is a high range emotion. Next, we can look at the different likely actions. So with ecstasy, there's a couple options here. Indulge, savor, maintain. Whereas we might have a different experience for amusement or relief. We are all so different, not only in what makes us emotional, but how we respond to our experience of emotions, that we couldn't put everyone will feel relief and they will exclaim with joy. It's just absolutely not true. Even you today might have that experience, whereas tomorrow you might have a different response. So this is truly developing your language, learning these different ways that you can communicate about experience of emotion, but it's not prescriptive and it doesn't tell you how to feel or what exactly you're feeling in the moment. This next aspect 
probably the most complex, but the one that brings together our experience of emotion. It shows us that emotions have triggers, that these triggers can be both universal, something we all feel, or something that's learned. One person has a trigger to excitement with badminton. Surely not everyone. (laughs) And what is really interesting here is that we see these triggers are mediated by this perception, by what goes on in terms of how we experience the world. By no means do any of us experience the world in the same way. We have our history, we have our stories, we have all of our family, our social front, everything that has led up to how we see the world today influences what we become emotional about and how we respond emotionally. So then here you see once again there are these different states that are arising from our triggers to our emotion and different actions. And in this site we can look, what is this like for anger? What is this like for fear? Similarly, we can look at the different states for fear. So I uh, would be really excited to keep showing you this, but it's online. We are excited for your ideas, financial support, (laughs) and otherwise to make more happen with this atlas. I joke because if someone came up and said, we want to use this for more research and training, we would say, "You, you betcha. Um, it was very, very difficult to make this atlas possible um, just in terms of our own time and resources, and we were so lucky to have Stamen help us. We are very excited for it to be shared, for you to use it in the way that really fits for you. If there's an application you have in mind to work with kids, to work with elders, we want to hear about it, and we would love to see how you might be able to implement this. One of the ideas we've had of how this could work for couples or for families, uh, in just the people I've been sharing it with at the hospital, I've heard that it works well with adolescents who are somewhat reluctant to share their emotions. This might be a fun way to do it. And just lastly, uh, as, a, as a researcher, um, I'm going to have to plug my, my current study, which is taking that atlas of emotion and thinking about how we might apply this to our everyday life. So we look at the atlas, we recognize our experience of emotion, but throughout our day, what is triggering us? How does it make us feel, and what do we do? I did a small pilot with residents last year in psychiatry and pediatrics, and for 10 days, they tracked their emotions. Over the course of those 10 days, I was surprised to find that half of their emotions were enjoyable. My hypothesis or theory that's shared by others in the field is just this awareness of our daily emotion might give us more richness and texture to what's happening. Those same residents who reported that half of their emotional experiences every day were enjoyable also had high levels of burnout. There's something different about our experience of daily emotion versus what might be our more chronic overriding theme. There's so much more we can learn so much more we can understand. So if you are a resident or no residents at UCSF, please get in touch with me. And for the general public, you can also email this, and probably sometime towards the end of next year or maybe middle, we'll be releasing it also to the public for a research study, potentially. So that's a little bit on EmoTrack. We really want to thank um, Eric and the whole Stamen All-Star team, some of whom are in the audience here. I really want to thank Shelley and um, all my awesome colleagues at Osher and the Paul Ekman group who were instrumental in supporting a lot of the work of making the Atlas happen. And my funding for being here and being able to do this work is from the T32 
and I also have received funding to help uh, EmoTrack happen through the Academy of Graduate Medical Educators and the Resource Allocation Program at UCSF. So thank you for your attention. <laughs> now I have to point out that putting on these silly Mickey Mouse hats was the Dalai Lama's idea, not mine. <laughs> he, you know, he's just having a good time. And the last thing he cares about is whether people will think it's ridiculous or silly. He was having fun. And he insisted that I put one on and join him. I want to invite folks to um, please um, get ready to ask your questions now. If you want to uh, approach the microphones, this is a, a wonderful opportunity to have some, I guess it's not really one-on-one, -on -one, but many-on-one -on -one interactions uh, with our guests. And, uh, and Eve, do you want to yeah. uh, introduce our Introducing new panelists? Eric Rodenbach. Yes. <laughs> He, I don't need this, this is for you. He is the director and founder of Stamen Design in San Francisco and was um, a awesome collaborator in visualizing and creating this atlas. We're lucky to have him here. I wish I could say that I did an international search to find him. But just as the idea that we needed to create a map came up, there was an article in the New York Times about Stamen. And it said he was in San Francisco. My God, that fell right into my lap. Destiny. Destiny. The thing that surprises me about your atlas is that when you show an emotion like enjoyment or fear and show it broken down into uh, a lot of sub-emotions or, or whatever that you had strung out across the, the uh, horizontal axis there, the implication is that all these different sub-emotions, if I can call them that, differ from each other on a single dimension like intensity or something. No, um, no okay. they don't. They really, uh, if you just take, uh, take fear, I don't have the thing in front of me, but you, that there are, and I should say that what I'm saying now, only some psychologists would agree with. Right. Because uh, now it's into an area where there hasn't been yet enough research. But certainly most people think that there's a variation in the strength of the emotion, but that there are different states of each emotion. Uh, so that uh, t terror is not just stronger than apprehension, but it's fundamentally different, although it shares enough properties uh, with, um, what's another extreme? Uh, panic. Panic. That's also a member of the fear family. I like to think of these things as families of related states that share enough in terms of, to some extent, what triggers them, to some extent, their physiology, their autonomic and central nervous system signatures, to some extent, likely actions, to some extent. Because they are also different. But they're more similar to each other than they are to uh, irritation or fury, to, mem to members of the anger family. So each of these emotions is a family of related states uh, that differ not just in intensity, but in their very nature, but have enough in common that it makes sense to think of them as belonging to the same, if I can use the metaphor, continent or same overall 
category of emotion. And this is not an idea that's unique to us. I mean, you can go way back in the history of psychology. You can go to uh, uh, Wundt, and a bit earlier than Wundt, Charles Darwin, in distinguishing these different modules of emotion. Thank you. I wonder if there's a way of giving more adequate uh, graphic representation to this that doesn't mislead us into seeing them as just differing along a single dimension. Well, that's what we've tried to do in the Atlas. And I think uh, if you go on any browser and put in Atlas of Emotion, it comes up. And you'll see it, and you can explore it. And I think you'll find we've done exactly what you're asking for, that you may object afterwards, hey, it's too complicated. Can't you make it a little simpler? No. It really, emotions, it's amazing how complex our emotional life is and how unattended it generally is. It's not what we know the most about ourselves, and yet uh, I do believe it is what drives most of what we do is to avoid certain emotions and to experience others. That idea is not unique to me. That was Sylvan Tompkins' idea. He said, because of emotions, we may never have sex. Because of emotions, we may starve ourselves to death. Because of emotions, we may take our own life. That the fundamental drives are puny compared to the power of emotions which override them. They are what drives life. I think he was absolutely right. First of all, uh, Darwin did a great deal with surveys, and, and you've obviously done um, <clears throat> a great deal as well, but I, I wonder a couple of things. One is, why not include surprise and contempt? Um, they would only be a, a little bit more, and you would get a lot more back. Um, secondly, why not use, um, uh, instead of a survey of experts, why not look at uh, research in the field that has more heft as opposed to opinion uh, to construct the atlas? Uh, I believe I didn't miss many research reports that were quantitative. I didn't look at the qualitative research, but uh, I think I pretty much, when we created the atlas, I think I, there wasn't a major research study published in the last 40 years that I hadn't read. Uh, it's not that vast. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have taken me a year to do it, or let alone six months. But there are a few hundred. And I think uh, we used every bit of information we could find. But we, ha we only focused on those that the scientific com community believe there's compelling evidence so the atlas is something that should change over time. As we have more research, as we learn more about our emotions, as the atlas itself provokes people to do research to challenge or enlarge it, it should grow uh, with time. Because it nowhere near maps our emotional life, just the part that's been best explored. So think of it as you would of any map. Now, it's not a map of the the world until you've gone around the whole world. We haven't gone around the whole world of emotion. All we have put into the atlas is the part of the emotion world that's been so far explored. Lots more to do. Many more dissertations to be made. Many more uh, grants to be funded. 
Hi. Um, well, uh, thanks a lot for the hard, hard work on the Atlas first. Um, so my first question is, uh, I find it exciting that uh, you delivered this um, as a website. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, what was the thought behind that as opposed to like a book, for instance, or like other types of uh, media? And a related question is that, um, uh, what kind of role do you think technology can play in this, in, in this goal of you know, the helping people develop a calm mind? Because um, we often think about technology as like very distracting. And so I think this is a good counterexample. And I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have other thoughts as to how it could be used for that more. I would like to ask Eric. I had a great conversation with Leslie Jonas, who introduced us the other night about a book project, and we'd love to pursue that. And I think it could be really, um, uh, really fantastic. I, the other thing I think is that technology is uh, things that were invented after you're 30 years old. Um, and so that for some of us, the technology of the web is a quite distracting thing, and for others, it's completely a, a native language. I mean, the, if I understand it right, the, the idea was to get it out in front of as many people as possible and to make it free. That was like a key part of, part of the, the remit from the Dalai Lama. So um, we came up with a format that was you know, available for uh, as many people as, as, as could, could use it. Just to add to that, the putting it on the web rather than into a book I mean, I've written 15 books. From the time I give it to a publisher till the time it appears has never been less than two years. I can put something on the web and it's there the next day. And then I can change it the day after that. It's a much more flexible system. That doesn't mean that we don't intend to also do a book because you can do different things with a book than you can do on a website. So they each have uh, their advantages. Yep. And I do think using technology to support a calm mind is a, is a, it's a sticky subject. I believe that whenever we look into this platform as a way to feel comfort or a way to feel less alone, we're unlikely to find it, <laughs> no matter where we're looking. But if we can use this as a mirror, looking inward, and I know this sounds very out there, but I believe there's a way for us to tune in through this platform that we're so accustomed to. So again, using the tools that are available as opposed to outward as a way, hopefully, to gaze inward. I do also want to call out, sorry, I do also want to call out my colleague Nicolette Hayes, who's over there, um, who did the, the, the bulk of the lines, uh, the, the bulk of the work on the, on the design of the project. Um, the, the thing really came together for us, I think, for, as a design artifact when Nicolette made a book to, for Eve to take to show the Dalai Lama. Um, and, and that was a kind of interesting moment, right? I mean, we'd spent so much time on the digital version and getting it, trying to get it right and all these things. And, I, uh, and, and you know, all these things happened digitally, but it really only crystallized. I think hmm. we, we, we spent two years with it, and then finally we, we knew enough and knew enough what not to say to actually make a book. And that was a sort of a key kind of, kind of moment in the whole process. You know, the other, <laughs> we should tell the story about the, the, what he said about his use of technology. Like, so that we showed this to the Dalai Lama in, um, uh, in Anaheim on a computer, and we tried to get him to use the mouse. You know, I've, I, I tried to teach the Dalai Lama how to use a, a mouse. <laughs> and um, he said, um, technology is for my next buddy. Like, that's <laughs> Thank you for the question. Yeah. Hi. When it came to visualizing emotion, how did you all decide on colors and shapes, and do they actually represent the emotions themselves? 
It's a really good question. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we actually went through and documented it because we were concerned that if we published an atlas of emotions with the same colors for emotions as they used in Inside Out, that Pixar movie, that they would sue us for derivative work or, you know. Um, but um, that was all Nicolette, and it, it just seemed to make sense, you know. And, I, and we, we really made the decision pretty early on that this was going to be in, uh, for, for, a, for a Western audience because uh, you know, red has a very different association in China than it does here. And we kind of decided that we, we were never going to be able to make something that was universal across, you know, every culture with, with these kinds of um, decisions. So, you know, red seemed to make sense for anger. I think, I mean, it was a design decision that Nicolette made and we all agreed with. And we were, you know, delighted to, to note when, the, when that movie came out that we had made the same design choices that they had. So there's something about whether it's cultural or just in the air or however that, that works out. I think the more, in some ways, the more interesting question is about the shapes of emotions. And if you go to the Alice, you'll, you'll see that, um, you know, anger is quite spiky and happiness is kind of jumpy and uh, disgust is like a pile of poop. You know, there's this kind of, this idea that, you could kind of bring an emotional resonance through design choices to representing individual emotions, um, and color was kind of one of those one of those one of those aspects. So it was a, it was a design decision. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, sorry about that. Um, I, my question is sort of around um, kind of at a practical, personal practice level. Like, what? How would you articulate like the value proposition of bothering to like? Distinguish the various really subtle flavors of like um, like terror and horror I saw were right next to each other or right. or some of the other subtle flavors of any of them yeah, I like that the value proposition I need to work on that more um, researchers were like, but what does it mean? Um, I think that the value proposition in the subtlety is anything that can train us to pay attention to our emotions at a subtler level is going to be our greatest advantage. So as my dad was saying, we are designed, kind of hardwired head to toe, to not think as our emotions arise, to be really caught in the experience and and where that leads us in terms of response. So when we think about developing emotional awareness, what we're doing is actually bringing something quite unnatural into the picture, this attention to what is happening in the moment. And to keep ourselves excited for that Experience, we kind of train ourselves in the subtlety. What does it feel like when I'm panicked? Is that different than when I'm anxious? And one of the things I um, really tend to teach a lot in cultivating emotional balance is a familiarization with the embodied experience of our emotion. All of us have some capacity to feel our emotions in our body. Some people are much better than others. But I think all of us can increase that awareness, right? And that awareness indeed in the moment might be the thing that helps us understand what we're experiencing before we react. Whether or not it's terror or panic may not matter in terms of, um, you know, why was, why was I terrified and not panicked? But helping us kind of reconstruct what occurred, especially in a distressing or regrettable emotional episode, we can start to familiarize ourselves. When I'm panicked, I actually feel really tight here. Or when I'm feeling more something like horror or terror, I might find that my stomach is jumpy. So we're giving ourselves these cues and clues just to develop awareness, not because we have the solution for terror versus panic versus we may, and we may develop that over time, but how would we even know if we didn't know what emotion we're experiencing and, importantly, what is triggering those emotions? And those are not easy tasks because they go contrary 
in my belief, to how emotions evolved, which was to deal with problems without awareness. And Dalai Lama said, well, if you can think about how you felt afterwards, that's kindergarten. That's the first step. If you can think about it during it, now you're in high school. And if you can think about it as it's being triggered, now you're in college. So they're very hard steps because you're going against, I believe, and I have to say I believe because I know not all emotion scientists would agree with me, just awareness is not built into the package, just the opposite. So you have to work to develop the habits that will allow you to be aware of how you're feeling as you're feeling it. And only then will you have choice. There are two things we'd most like to choose in emotions. What we become emotional about and how we behave when we are emotional. And you can't get either one of them without awareness. Without awareness of the past, but awareness of the current, uh, awareness of the impulse as it arises before it's been acted on. My last psychotherapy supervisor, because in 1957, when I was a intern at Langley Porter, my supervisor said, if you can introduce a few seconds between impulse and action, you will have given your patients choice. And that's what they want. Well, he, he knew nothing of Buddhism. It's exactly the same kind of thinking. But, you know, we're looking at the same species. We shouldn't be surprised that from very different angles and viewpoints and backgrounds, we come up with some of the same observations and suggestions. Thank you all so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.